You might not have put two and two together or realize that this podcast, it's actually produced by a nonprofit, listener-supported Wyoming Public Media. We're just a little old station housed in a basement on the beautiful University of Wyoming campus. We aren't getting paid big bucks as a for-profit business. No siree, we're making this podcast not for money, but because everyone on our team believes in what we do, telling the missing stories of the real American West. But that means we rely on people like you. If you make sure to download every episode as soon as it comes out, or have been telling all your friends what a big Modern West fan you are, or would be seriously bummed if we disappeared from your feed, If all that describes you, I wonder if you'd take a quick minute to do something for me. Get into your browser and search for themodernwest.org and find the donate button. It doesn't matter how much you commit to, $5 or $100. It just matters that you show us that you want us to keep telling these stories. My recommendation? Pause this episode and do it real quick before you forget at themodernwest.org. Imagine the little girl, hunched in the candlelight, sitting by the bedside of a sick old woman. She caresses the frail hand and whispers in her ear, promising that help is on the way. The old woman thrashes in agony, but the girl tells her over and over, the doctor, he's coming. That little girl, her name is Susan LaFleche, youngest daughter of the last standing Omaha chief, Iron Eye, or as he prefers, Joseph LaFleche. It's 1873 in Omaha territory in Nebraska. The doctor sent word that yes, he's on the way, but still, he doesn't arrive. Susan is only eight years old. She doesn't know the name of the illness, but she knows when someone's life is ebbing away. She calls for the doctor again, and again, then a fourth time. The old woman stops thrashing. Her breathing grows fainter. The doctor never comes. And finally, the old woman takes her last breath of life. It was only an Indian, and it did not matter. The doctor preferred hunting for prairie chickens rather than visiting poor, suffering humanity. Years later, Susan tells this story to explain why she decided to become a doctor. In fact, the very first Native American doctor. Against all odds, she left her family to travel east to attend the Women's Medical College of Pennsylvania, graduating top of her class. Then, she did something that her professors thought was lunacy. She moved back home to practice medicine. It has always been a desire of mine to study medicine. Ever since I was a small girl, for even then I saw the need of my people for a good physician. A good physician. Right about then, as one century ended and another began, that's exactly what tribal communities needed most of all. Overlapping waves of epidemics were killing Susan's people in great numbers. Cholera, influenza, dysentery, trachoma, and worst of all, tuberculosis. 
She went to work for the Bureau of Indian Affairs, caring for 1,200 patients living across a 1,300-square-mile reservation. That's the size of a couple of New England states put together. And she made house calls, alone, on horseback. My office hours are any and all hours of the day and night. Dr. Sue, her patients called her. Native or non-native, Dr. Sue gave them the medicine they needed. I'm not accomplishing miracles, but I'm beginning to see the results of better hygiene and health habits. And we're losing fewer babies and fewer cases to infection. But reading her letters back to her boss, the BIA Commissioner Francis Loop, it's obvious that any progress Dr. Sue was making wasn't getting a lot of support from the U.S. government. She pleaded with them to give better care to the children in the Indian boarding schools. She told the story of one 18-year-old girl with TB that got shipped home. I diagnosed abscess of the lung with no discharge. I sent her to Arizona, but she died in a short while. The superintendent told me she had been examined in January and passed. Another came home in March. I found her with tuberculosis of the lung. She lived only six weeks. In spite of all precaution, she infected her mother and her grandmother, who both died. There is no telling how many of these infections in that large school could have been prevented by proper examination. But her letters fell on deaf ears. Working 20 hours a day, Dr. Sue became sick herself. Still, she kept writing. I've broken down from overwork. I know what a small figure our affairs cut with all the department has on its hands, but I also know that if you knew the conditions and circumstances to be remedied, you would do all you could do to remedy them. The spread of tuberculosis among my people is something terrible. It shows itself in the lungs, kidneys, abdominal tract, blood, brain, and glands. Something must be done. The physical degeneration in 20 years among my people is terrible. Even her husband died of the disease. Finally, Commissioner Loop wrote back. I am sorry to hear that you are now laid aside by illness by active work among your people. They never needed the kind of help which you give more than they do now. But ultimately, Loop's reply? Owing to a lack of funds, it is quite impracticable. He said, maybe some charities could help instead. The federal government just didn't have enough money for health care in Indian country. And as the decades passed, it became a very common refrain. From Wyoming Public Media, PRX, and funding from the Pulitzer Center, this is the Modern West, exploring the evolving identity of the American West. I'm Melody Edwards. So this was the dire health situation of indigenous communities heading into the 20th century. Rampant disease and a U.S. government with very little will to fulfill their treaty agreements to provide health care. If any money at all was appropriated, it was usually just to keep Native Americans from spreading disease to soldiers. In fact, 
Dr. Sue was one of only 77 doctors at the time, serving all the tribes in the whole country. Any money these doctors received was pure luck or utter willpower, like Dr. Sue had. In the end, she got the hospital she wanted built for her people. I shall always fight good and hard, even if I have to fight alone. In 1915, at 49 years old, Dr. Sue died of bone cancer. Not long after that, the country started to recognize the need to provide support to tribes. President Taft reminded Congress of those long-standing promises. As guardians of the welfare of the Indians, it is our duty to give the race a fair chance for an unmaimed birth, a healthy childhood, and a physically efficient maturity. And in 1921, Congress passed the Snyder Act for, quote, the benefit, care, and assistance, and for the relief of distress and the conservation of health for Indian tribes throughout the United States, end quote. It marked the first time that the U.S. made direct payments to the tribes for health care. But what I wondered was whether this made a dent in the enormous health needs of tribes at the time. So I reached out to Mark Trahant, the editor of Indian Country Today and a citizen of the Shoshone-Bannock tribe. I got to chat with him on Zoom, his newsroom quiet in the background, a guy with salt and pepper hair and a friendly smile. Behind little round glasses, his eyes reflect someone who thinks fast and deep about whatever it is he's working on. And he's done tons of work reporting on the history of Native American health care. Mark says, sure, now the government was allocating money, but often it didn't make it to the people who needed it. Like $30 million Congress gave the BIA for tuberculosis, the director at the time decided he needed that money for other things. That kind of corruption discouraged physicians from even seeking aid. One of the physicians actually testified to Congress. I I don't know why I bother coming to Congress because the money never gets there anyway. But finally, in 1955, the BIA created a health program now known as the Indian Health Service, or IHS. It set up clinics and assigned doctors to serve tribal communities. Mark says it didn't take long for tribes to begin seeing their health improve. I mean, one of their first actions I think was probably most brilliant in that they started to treat issues with health as public health issues. So they invested heavily in sanitation, for example. And the first few years after IHS was created, the infant mortality rate dropped significantly um, to actually in some places lower than the general population. And that was because of good access to clean water and sanitation. But one step forward, two steps back. Because meanwhile, Congress passed a bunch of laws to assimilate Native Americans. Termination laws, they were called. The feds terminated tribal governments and sold off tribal resources, and started moving tribes off of reservations to urbanize them. Mark interviewed some of the political movers and shakers who recalled that era on the PBS program Living History. Brad Patterson worked for three presidents, Eisenhower, Nixon, and Ford. He says the termination era left scars. Destroyed the Indian tribal government and in fact destroyed the, the re- treaty relationships protecting their lands and uh, 
actually happened to one in more than one Indian tribe, one in particular I'm thinking of, the Mononymy tribe of Wisconsin, who all the tribal gone, land was gone, it was given over to private development and sold. The banks took over Indian, Indian tribal currency, the, the, the finances, and uh, it was a disaster for, for Indian people. The Bureau of Indian Affairs picked the Menominee because they figured they could survive on their lumber industry. Utah Senator Arthur Watkins says what the government was doing was, quote, freeing the Indian from wardship status and compared it to freeing slaves after the Civil War. Termination kicked in for the tribes in 1961. The government cut off all the funds they once sent for stuff like roads, schools, utilities, and health clinics. Instantly, the tribe started sliding into poverty. This went on for over a decade. Lots of Native people moved to cities at this time in search of jobs, but things weren't much better there. By the late 60s, things had gotten so bad, urban Native Americans organized the American Indian Movement. They staged numerous protests, taking over places like Alcatraz Island and other places to spread their message that things needed to change. On their list of demands, reclaim and affirm the health of Native people. Then Richard Nixon came into office, passionate about the plight of Native Americans because of an indigenous football coach that he'd been close to in high school. He ended up getting behind two major laws that changed things for tribes in America. The first, in 1975, was the Indian Self-Determination Act, which put a stop to termination policies and gave tribes more power to govern themselves. They could even sign contracts with the government to run their own programs, including health clinics. Here Nixon is signing a bill to return Blue Lake to the Taos Pueblo tribe in 1970. This bill indicates a new direction in Indian affairs in this country, a new direction in which we will have the cooperation of both Democrats and Republicans, one in which there will be more of an attitude of cooperation rather than paternalism, one of self-determination rather than termination, one of mutual respect. But the need required even more specific attention Mark also interviewed Dr. Abe Bergman, a physician working in a Seattle pediatric hospital. In the uh, late 60s, uh, it was obvious that some of the most underserved children in Seattle area were Indian children. And I came to know a remarkable leader, Bernie White Bear, who had founded the Seattle Indian Clinic. I talked to Bernie and he pointed out, he educated me that uh, the Indian Health Service did not provide any help for urban Indians, even though half the Indians in the United States live off of reservations. Abe had already been working on public health policy with Washington Senator Scoop Jackson, as well as a brand new staffer, Blackfeet citizen Forrest Girard. So Abe took the problem to the two of them. And I said, would you be interested in legislation that expanded the Indian Health Service responsibility to urban Indians? And he said, well, that sounds like a good idea. 
So they all started putting it together. This was called the Indian Healthcare Improvement Act, and it proposed allocating almost $2 billion for Native American health care. Nixon supported it, but was forced to resign before he could sign it. So it got passed on to President Ford. On September 13, 1976, Ford signed it into law. Forrest Girard told Mark that between the two new Native American laws, the ramification for tribes were huge. What the Nixon self-determination policy did was to say, Indian tribe, you have the right to assume the control and responsibility of programs and services operated by the Bureau of Indian Affairs and then the Indian Health Service on your reservation. It's really a remarkable success story for government in that it intervened, it brought health care uh, to a much better level. Now when we talk about disparities, we're talking really about a few years. And it was 10, 20, 30, 40 years at some point. So it, it has been a real remarkable story. And Mark says, unlike the rest of U.S. healthcare, the Indian Health Service is a real healthcare system. The main problem with IHS, though, is that just like in the days when Dr. Sue was trying to fight tuberculosis, there's never enough money. I wanted to hear about that fight from someone I knew who has lived it. Soon after I was vaccinated, I made the long, beautiful drive up to the Wind River Reservation in central Wyoming to talk to Richard Brannon. Richard was the CEO of his tribe's IHS clinic for years. Now he's nearing retirement age, a little hunched and shuffly, not as tall as he used to be. He told me, as a northern Arapaho kid, he'd sometimes wait five, seven hours to get in to see the IHS doctor because they didn't do appointments. And back then, they gave care using the 72-hour rule. We, we were so severely underfunded that um, there was a lot of uh, orthopedic procedures we couldn't do. And basically, we, we were uh, subjected to what you call that, you know, the 72-hour rule, which is loss of life, limb, or eyesight within 72 hours. And then they would, you know, pay for the service. But if... It wasn't a possibility of you, you know, losing your life or your eyesight or a limb or whatever. Uh, you would be declared self-pay, and then, uh, you know, t typically the the patient gets turned over to the uh, collection bureau, or and then their you know their credit is ruined. And without orthopedic care, people suffered in terrible agony. So to ease their pain. IHS doctors started passing out lots of painkillers instead, leading to addiction. When Richard grew up, he went to work for IHS, running their finances. He didn't like what he had to deal with there. The issue with IHS Indian Health Service funding is it doesn't factor in inflationary, you know, the uh, inflation factor plus growth of populations. So therefore, per capita expenditures always are decreasing, and they never, you know, full, fully funded. Richard says on Wind River, the health needs are only funded for 35% of the population. Now he was serving as the chairman of the tribe's business council, too. But a few years ago, something 
started to eat at him. greatest enemies is trauma. We have historical trauma, intergenerational trauma. Uh, we have contemporary trauma, but we don't even have time to recuperate from that tragedy before another one happens. And it's, you know, it's a constant vigil. As an Arapaho, death is your constant companion. You go to funerals when you're just a little baby, a little one. And I still go to funerals. But why did that trauma start weighing on him now? Richard told himself, his life is good. Yes, I was comfortable in my job. I, I, basically, I had the systems. I knew I just tweaked it. But... God came to my office, stood right by my right side, and he told me, enough is enough. And he said, enough early death, enough trauma, enough suffering. And, and then God took his finger and wrote enough on my heart. Richard knew what that enough meant. It meant he needed to help his tribe take over their own health clinic and start healing their citizens. It wasn't a task he liked the sound of. He knew other tribes who had done it, and it looked hard. But it'd be even harder for the northern Arapaho because they shared their reservation with the eastern Shoshone, two sovereign nations living on one piece of soil, a decision the feds imposed on them both way back in the 1800s. It was an uneasy partnership at the best of times. But once Richard surrendered to doing this thing, he started getting strategic. What I did is I applied for the uh, Director of Health and Human Services for the Arapaho Tribe. I worked there. Uh, then I uh, went ahead and ran for the council. I got reelected to the Business Council. Um, we negotiated at 638. It, it took about a year. That number that he mentioned there, a 638. It's the name of a kind of contract that tribes can take out with the feds. Thanks to the Indian Self-Determination Act, when they get a 638, they can take over their health clinic, get the money that would have gone to their federally managed clinic, but use it in the way that they see fit. But getting a 638 ain't easy or cheap. Uh, there was about 17 federal attorneys that were working against us because our reservation is unique in Indian country. Uh, two separate sovereigns that have uh, common ownership. It was a very grueling year. But today, Richard and I are sitting in a conference room of Wind River Cares, the Northern Arapaho tribe's very own clinic. The clinic he dreamed of building. Here it is, bustling with life. After we talk, he gives me a tour. This is the IT office. I'm just giving a tour here. Hello. 
This is the, uh -huh, the, the brain. Of, this is the yes. brain of the organization. <laughs> yeah, Hi. <laughs> <laughs> How y'all doing? Right. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. See ya. Hallway after hallway, full of everything a person could need for complete health care, and not just physical. There's also a mental health clinic, optometry, dentistry, physical therapy. In fact, they're outgrowing this space. When we uh, purchased the um, Days Inn Hotel, um, we're uh, converting the bottom floor. It'll be a 10-chair kidney dialysis center. Is that right? And then the, uh, the other part will be a uh, diabetic clinic. And we're, we want to integrate behavior health in with that because mm -hmm. When a person is diagnosed with diabetes, it's, it's very traumatic for them. And it's almost, you know, like losing your leg or, or losing, you know, it's just losing your lifestyle, I guess. Walking around Wind River Cares, I think of Dr. Sue and how much she would have loved this place to offer so much integrated care to her patients in Omaha territory, just like Richard, it was her dream, too. Mark Trahant, the editor of Indian Country Today, says these days about 60% of health care on reservations is now tribally managed. 60%. That's what you call a quiet social movement happening in Indian Country. After the break... Taylor Stagner tells us all about the 638 contract movement and all the obstacles that tribes have overcome to get it in motion. If you are liking what you're hearing, and actually, hey, even if you don't, we would love to hear about it. Take a moment right now to leave a rating or review on your podcast app. It'll help new listeners discover the modern West so that we can keep bringing you stories about the evolving identity of the American West. Hey, thanks, y'all. This season of The Modern West is sponsored by the Argosy Foundation, committed to supporting diverse people and programs that make society a better place to live. More information is available at argosyfnd.org. The Argosy Foundation is a philanthropic organization focused on leveraging the impact of people and organizations working to make the world a better place, employing creative and entrepreneurial approaches that help people to help themselves. Argosy works to ensure that their partners become successfully self-sustaining. The intention of this work is to solve systemic problems, build teams and communities, create replicable solutions and inspire others to contribute in their own ways. To learn more about this mission and the Argosy's work, visit argosyfnd.org. In the hot July sun, bulldozers buzz by, dust is flying everywhere, and the Fort Peck Wellness Center is coming along nicely. 
Picture it. I'm in a long dress with the wrong shoes, Crocs I believe, in a neon vest and hard hat with all my recording equipment on. I'm a sight to be seen as I toddle from room to room, shuffling past construction workers trying to look professional. They direct me around the soon-to-be crown jewel of healthcare on the Fort Peck Reservation in Northeast Montana. The $23 million facility started construction the summer of last year and is expected to be finished by this winter. The facility is large, around 50,000 square feet and I am being shown every nook and cranny. Hope you like the smell of paint. Oh, love it. <laughs> We've entered kind of through the north back door of the building. This would go out. There's plans for uh, soccer fields, play fields, and, and stuff out the back. There's also been some discussion of, uh, of potentially having a football field out there. That's Terry Sukit, architect and project manager for the Wellness Center. He steers me from room to room, describing what room is what. Dental care, therapists, rooms for telehealth, workout equipment, a swimming pool, space for elders to socialize and where they can hold events and classes. The gym has a, um, a running track that goes around three sides and it connects to the second floor exercise space. So you can walk or run indoors. There's room for physical therapy equipment and even a communal kitchen to feed people during large events. You can almost see the community members of Fort Peck a year from now taking advantage of all the facilities. The idea was to make this facility a one-stop shop for tribal members. I think we've all wanted something like this where you don't have to travel all the way across town to get a checkup and then to another office to get a prescription. It's a very forward-thinking building, taking into account what would be best for tribal members and really what would be ideal for anyone in any community. The Wellness Center is also expected to provide 70 full-time jobs when it's complete and in its construction has employed many community members as well. Miles Lilly is a Cinnaboyne and he's a construction worker on the project. He's been working here for about a year and gives a chuckle when he sees my outfit. <laughs> Tactically, I use this as my window to ask him questions. He's carrying power tools and it's hot and he wipes sweat from under his hard hat and removes his thick protective glasses. While the other construction workers move around us, he tells me about his kids. My oldest is 25. Um, my son works here. Um, he's 18 and my youngest is three and I got a nine-year-old. So I'd like to bring him here, you know, show him the building. I'm proud of it and I want to show him what I built. Miles has lost his grandmother and mother to diabetes-related illness and looks forward to when he can come to the wellness center and exercise and get medical treatment in the same building so the same thing doesn't happen to him. To me, it is important, like I said, diabetes is a number one killer of Indians. My mother lost her, her legs, my grandma lost her legs to diabetes, and I don't want my children to have to suffer or see me suffer through that. But yes, this building is a big asset to the community.
He tells me he loves the Fort Peck Reservation and he's excited to be a part of literally building a better future for his community and his kids. As I walked my car to return to Billings, about a six hour drive, the sunset is pink and purple. It starts to rain and I look back at the building as drops start to clean off some of the dust caked on my forehead. After the long, dry summer we've had in Montana, the rain was welcome. Rain is filled with new beginnings and what is to come. On the drive, I get to wondering how this project got started. When I get back, I track down one of the guys who made it happen. I give him a call and arrange a Zoom meeting. Kenny Smoker sits on a Zoom call with me from his office on the Fort Peck Reservation in Poplar, Montana. He's the director of the Health Promotion and Disease Prevention Program there and a member of the Fort Peck Tribes. Even on the screen, I can see he has discerning eyes and a no-nonsense attitude. He says that making healthcare more accessible to tribal members is essential to improving the quality of life on the reservation. Kenny is all business, but you can tell that's from years of trying to better the lives of tribal members. He tells me the project started in 2001 when a group of local high schoolers from Fort Peck constructed a list of things that they wanted to see in their town. The list included this wellness center to help close the life expectancy gap between the indigenous of Fort Peck and their white neighbors. 59 years is the average life expectancy for those living on Fort Peck, while the rest of Montana is 78. That's an almost 20 year difference. Smoker says that every two years, the tribe does an analysis of death certificates. And the last time Kenny checked, the average age of people dying on Fort Peck reservation was dropping. He says he checks every few years. And right now the average age of death went from 57 to 53. And if you look in the obituaries on a, on a daily basis, which I do, the numbers are always very low. I mean, the ages, you know, and that's what we're trying to make a difference in. Nothing else. Giving our people that opportunity to extend life. Like many other tribal communities, there's a huge discrepancy of life expectancy between those who live on and off the reservation. When people hear this, they usually ask why, and it's a lot of reasons at once. Lack of federal funds to tribal clinics, lack of transportation, lack of healthcare workers, lack of treaty rights being made good on. The reservation has two IHS clinics, mainly for emergency care, but Kenny says that the need was too great. He's interested in helping people thrive, not just survive. He's been tackling keeping kids off cigarettes and fighting diabetes, as well as spearheading the Wellness Center project. The federally run clinics were not making any progress solving Fort Peck's health crisis, so the tribe started investigating the option of 638ing. They could decide what funding to apply for, what loans to get, what to do with donations, and they could build their dream wellness center more quickly because there isn't as much red tape to move through. Soon Fort Peck even secured funding sources like new market tax credits and a grant with the Department of Energy to make the building more energy efficient. Kenny says that 638 is a part of the rich tapestry of healthcare fueled by tribal sovereignty. 
but we can expand and we can put whatever we feel is important to improve health. And we've even gotten to the point where we're addressing the social determinants of health as well. Each tribal community has different needs. One tribal community might want to run just its own pharmacy, while another would like to take over all healthcare needs for its tribal members. And from there, it gets more complex. Anyone who has spent time researching federal Indian policy knows it's opaque and confusing. But here is what I've learned with help from an expert. In the age of the Zoom interview, Vanessa Tibbetts and I talk about what 638 contracts are. She facilitates the transfer of the federal government's IHS clinics contracts over to locally run tribal leadership. And she still finds the work dense and almost intentionally illegible sometimes. She works for the American Indian Public Health Resource Center and she's Oglala Lakota. She says that there are pros and cons for tribes considering whether to enter into a 638 contract. A lot goes into the decision to run your own healthcare clinic. For one, more money goes directly to the tribes instead of to IHS. And so when you're running it yourself, you're open to um, more funding avenues. So you're open to state revenue and um, privatized healthcare services and different things like that. And more services are billable so that tribes are bringing in more money through um, Medicaid, Medicare, privatized insurance. So uh, that can go towards more healthcare services being offered. Vanessa also says it can be really flexible to the particular situation of a tribe. I remember that Fort Peck wanted to be able to let independent medical contractors use offices in the building. Fort Peck is constructing a whole new building, but a lot of tribes take over the old Indian Health Service buildings once management is switched over to the tribes. When we think about 638-ing our healthcare services, some tribes have actually done that completely and they run their previous IHS clinic or their um, previous hospitals. But there's one big reason not to do a 638. Some tribes choose not to 638 at all because they believe it is a federal responsibility and a treaty responsibility to provide healthcare services to tribal people. In other words, some tribes want the federal government to make good on its promise to provide healthcare for all the land that was taken from them. And a lot of the time, it's just too expensive to take on all the financial responsibility of running a clinic. It's a huge financial risk, and building the institutional scaffolding to support a whole clinic takes years. That was the case for Fort Peck. They had to take out loans to help pay for such a large project, and not every tribe can do that. Vanessa also tells me because a lot of tribes are rural, many services are not readily available. It's hard to lure medical professionals to hire when it's a day's drive to the nearest metro center. And then Vanessa says you take into account the fact that Congress has failed for decades to fully fund IHS. And so that makes it really difficult to provide thorough services when, um, you know, our hospitals and clinics are only funded at, you know, less at like 50 percent. 
I've heard that federal prisons are more funded than some IHS clinics. For all the federal treaty promises to provide health care and for all the land that was taken by force, indigenous people are dying because of the lack of access to good health care, to good medicine. Vanessa says the decision to 638, a tribal health care program, is not made lightly, but many of the tribal programs she's worked with have benefited from the transition. When a tribe activates a 638, both Vanessa and Kenny are in agreement that the tribe is exercising a form of tribal sovereignty. Tribal communities know what's best for them, and a 638 contract gives them more freedom to make those decisions. Fort Peck needed a one-stop shop for the health and well-being of their tribal members, and that's what they are building. More convenient care that takes into account a whole person. If you need a dentist appointment after you work out, that's going to be available to you at the Fort Peck Wellness Center. Want to take a dip in the pool after your physical therapy? You got it. It's all about providing the best, most convenient care. Tribal sovereignty gives tribal communities control and jurisdiction over their own destiny. We talked in the last episode about how that autonomy has been historically taken away from indigenous people by failing to supply basic health care, and how disease was even used as a kind of biological warfare. Reclaiming the right to supply healing and medicine is one way to end that war once and for all. Recently, I talked with a Northern Cheyenne scholar who studies tribal sovereignty, Dr. Leo Kilsback. For Indian people, we know, we know what it's like to be regulated. And we know what it's like to be questioned at every angle. For the more successful tribes, in terms of tribes that have been able to get a better handle on their health care and their health services on a reservation, they, they're successful because of the commitment of, of individuals that have fought for what they wanted in um, whether it's you know through litigation or whether it's through just demanding for what's what's right, what's rightfully theirs. Leo is at Montana State University Bozeman and wrote two award-winning books, A Sacred People and A Sovereign People, both about the concept of tribal sovereignty and decolonization. And both are crazy personal stories about his own people, the Northern Cheyenne. Leo says one of the most fundamental ways we can heal from generations of genocide is by reclaiming our right to take care of each other. You know, um, healthcare has been an issue for Native American people since, you know, a long time. We endured smallpox, cholera, and in the common cold, and I, I think theoretically, if you t- take a look at it from a, a much larger standpoint, it can be overwhelming. If you if you examine it through the lens of, even though the lens is not as, as clear as the, from the tribal tribal sovereignty perspective, I think more more ground can be covered. Leo says that means empowering community members like Kenny Smoker with the Fort Peck Wellness Center who know by heart what issues need to be addressed. We saw this with COVID, we see it with diabetes, we see it with uh, other 
health disparities in any country that Indian nations are committed to protecting their, their communities, which is something that I think is, is really important. And I think that will continue, I mean, regardless of what our neighbors may think that masks don't work and what, what have you. I mean, uh, I think Indian people are, are committed to protecting uh, this year. Last year it was protect the elders, this year it's protect the children. <laughs> I touched base with Kenny Smoker on Fort Peck to see how the Wellness Center is shaping up. He says it's on schedule to be finished with construction by the end of the year. It's hard to read his no-nonsense facial expression, but I can tell he's pleased with how far the tribe has come. Sure, he knows there's lots more work to be done. A project like this is truly never done. Kenny says that while 638 contracts have a lot of pros and cons, he thinks that this was the right decision for Fort Peck. He thinks it'll help his tribe get ahead of all the health disparities instead of just treating symptoms. So what this means is, you know, to me, it's, it's our people deserve the best and we're trying to, if we have the resources to give them the best, let's give them the best. Kenny says that now is the time to make good on promises made to better help the people of the Fort Peck Reservation move forward to a better future together. I know I'm getting corny here, but working towards a better future is driving Fort Peck's decisions. You know, I was on a tribal council years ago, and I went to Congress and along with some of our other leaders to say if we, we need more dollars to address this. If we only had this, we can make a change. Well, now we have that ability, we have those resources to make that change. There's lots happening on the Fort Peck Reservation. This fall, the tribe took steps to support better infrastructure to grow the local economy, including overhauling Fort Peck's web presence. They want to focus on ecotourism and make their streets safer. The community is moving forward together to build a better future for tomorrow, and I believe that's what's happening. Good news after what seems to be generations of bad news. And after these last couple years of COVID-19, many tribal communities have weathered loss and discrimination to come out stronger by focusing on helping each other. A lot of tribes were in the same position as Fort Peck when the COVID-19 pandemic hit. They were making big changes and reclaiming their health care. In the next episode, we head back to my home on the Wind River Indian Reservation. Savannah was a reporter covering Wind River when news started trickling in that a deadly disease had arrived on our reservation's border. Truly, when I think about how strong the Wind River community is, it makes me swell with pride. I can't wait for Savannah to tell you more about it. Next time on The Modern West, we catch up with Savannah as she witnesses the next chapter in pandemic history unfold before her eyes. She's working away as a reporter for Wyoming Public Radio when the COVID-19 pandemic arrives.
It's a nightmare that keeps tribal leaders like Richard Brannon awake at night. It was about maybe February or right around March. And for some reason, I woke up in the morning and I was scared to death. Okay. Because, you know, I looked at our existing president then, Donald Trump, and I knew he was totally incompetent. I knew he was totally incapable of having any empathy or any understanding or the ability to manage a healthcare response to a pandemic. We'll find out how the Northern Arapaho and other tribes across the West manage the outbreak. What was your experience of the 72-hour rule for life, limb, or eyesight in an Indian Health Service clinic? Share your insights with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Modern West Pod. I'm Melody Edwards. Today's episode was produced by me and Taylor Stagner. Anna Rader was our digital producer. Our editorial team is Savannah Marr, Cooper McKim, Noah Greenspan, Charles Fournier, and Sarah Ann Leverett. History reenactment by Sarah Ortegon, Jojo Edwards, and Ken Kushnitsky. Our illustrator is Zach Kana. Music by Sean Francis and his band Pegasus, also Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme song is by Screen Door Porch. This series was produced in partnership with the Pulitzer Center for Crisis Reporting. The Modern West is a production of PRX and Wyoming Public Media. One of our goals is to get a dialogue flowing about the stories that we're telling. We're hoping that you'll join the conversation. So connect with us on social media and let us know what your thoughts are, whether you agree with what you're hearing or not. We're at Modern West Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. That's Modern West Pod.